Hello, and welcome to the Reorient Podcast, the show about international issues and international people with an Asian twist. My name is Jesse Friedlander. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Reorient Podcast. My name is Jesse Friedlander. I'm your host, and today is May 12th, 2022. I have the pleasure here of being joined by Mr. James Falk, who is the author of a very interesting new book called Financial Cold War, A View of Sino-U.S. Relations from the Financial Markets. James has a very long and distinguished career working in senior positions with the Hong Kong Stock Exchange, as well as in investment banking, and has an excellent familiarity and knowledge of both China, the United States, the UK, and the West in general, and sees how all the pieces fit together in terms of history, political economy, financial markets, etc., that help to shape the geopolitical environment, which is impacting all of us. I'm very much glad that James wrote this a very informative book, very well documented, um, substantial, and I'm thrilled to have him here with me today. So James, welcome to the Reorient podcast. Thank you so much, Jesse, and it is wonderful to be here at your lovely home recording this. I should mention that we are uh, not in uh, Hong Kong, where we met last time, but in Martha's Vineyard, which is an interesting vantage point to be discussing uh, U.S.-China relations. So, James, my first question for you is, um, what prompted you to write this book? I'm sure it wasn't an easy um, undertaking because it's a very long and dense book, and you must have spent uh, countless hours researching and writing it. Well, the, the, the easy answer to that is that uh, we found ourselves, my, my family, like many others in 2020, sitting in lockdown. And my wife obviously thought I needed a project. And since I generally do what my wife tells me to do, I decided to go off and write this book. But the, the longer answer to, to that is that I spent almost 10 years of my life at the heart of China's capital markets opening and through that had the, the very good fortune of coming into close contact with a lot of senior Chinese policymakers, policymakers from Hong Kong, policymakers in the United States and around the world. And we, we have this saying in Hong Kong in Cantonese about the chicken talking to the duck which essentially means people talking at cross purposes. And I found that that was happening quite a lot. There were a lot of chickens talking to a lot of ducks amongst many of the major actors in financial policy around the world. And so my book is an attempt to try and explain where each side is coming from in the hope that it will assist policymakers in China, in the United States and around the world to understand each other's positions better. Well, I think it's a very noble goal. 
Um, everyone knows that these are the the world's um, largest and second largest economies and militaries and um, uh, are uh, huge uh, actors in the in the global system. So we really cannot afford not to pay attention, and the two sides cannot afford not to uh, speak to one another and try to resolve um, their interests and their challenges and problems in a, a peaceful and orderly manner. So, James, my, my first question about the book, I think for uh, I found it quite surprising, but also quite um, entertaining and illuminating was uh, you actually go way back in time uh, when you're looking at the the context for the financial markets and, and the political economy. And you discuss France and uh, back in the um, I believe it's the 1700s uh, in terms of, of France's uh, monetary system and its economy. So uh, what? Tell us why you started or why you felt that was important uh, context for us to understand. There there are two reasons that I I believe that many of the tensions between China and the United States that have arisen have come about due to financial imbalances. And the Mississippi bubble was the, the first ever documented stock market bubble in the world. And... There were very, there's a very curious set of factors that led to that. The, the second reason was because in the current narrative about financial policy and particularly monetary policy, there is a huge amount of focus on the 1930s and the mistakes in financial and monetary policy that contributed towards the outbreak of the Second World War. I believe that many of those mistakes are apt for the current time, but the the two sets of circumstances between today and the 1930s are quite different. And where we have hewed excessively towards trying to address the mistakes of the 1930s, I believe that we may be inadvertently, or policy makers may be inadvertently creating different problems. And I, I thought that it was helpful to have a look at that instance of the French financial crisis, which ultimately contributed to the French Revolution as a helpful study about the dangers of excessively loose monetary policy for a prolonged period of time. Yes, and that's very topical given the um, uh, the massive amount of monetary expansion we've seen by the major central banks over the last um, one to two decades. And now we're starting to see very uh, strong amounts of inflation after a, a stock market bubble and, and other bubbles, different asset markets. So it's quite interesting to, to look back in time and see uh, France uh, struggle um, to maintain its um, its currency value. And I think you even mentioned actually China went through some similar things uh, back in its uh, early 
family history. But I, I actually um, should have asked you at the beginning, James, uh, when I asked you about why you chose this book, I think there was another reason perhaps that you didn't mention, which is you have a, a personal sort of interest in, in family um, uh, background that's sort of connecting uh, the West and, to China. So just maybe share a little bit with our, our listeners about uh, your personal experience, uh, both in your family and your education and profession of linking uh, both uh, the U.S. and the West to, to China. Oh gosh, well, my, my story is quite typical of, of many people from Hong Kong. My, my family is mixed Chinese and British, and my wife is American. So we, we have two young sons who are growing up both as Chinese and U.S. nationals. So in many ways, I, I have a very vested interest in China and the United States being on good terms from a family and personal perspective. But I also remember very well my Chinese grandfather used to say that Eurasians have two brains. That's not to say that Eurasians are any smarter than anyone else, but what he meant was that growing up with two different languages and with two different cultures you just inherently have an understanding on a very deep and emotional level where each side is coming from. You understand all of the goods and bads, the biases and the emotions tied to beliefs and can empathize with the positions that each side are taking. And I felt that that was something that is sorely lacking at the moment between policymakers on both sides. So clearly there's a lot of tension uh, between the West uh, and, and China. And we've seen uh, even in recent months uh, sanctions by um, Western countries against Chinese officials over human rights concerns in Xinjiang. And we've seen, uh, you know, a lot of uh, rhetoric at perhaps multilateral venues. Um, and we've just seen a lot of articles that are raising concerns about the potential for conflict, whether it's in the Spratly Islands or over Taiwan, or is perhaps we're seeing in the financial realm tensions over um, the access to U.S. capital markets by Chinese companies. But at the same time, just to keep perspective, these are there's massive amounts of trade and investment that has continued unimpeded between the U.S. and China. There's a massive number of Chinese, uh, both Chinese citizens and formerly Chinese citizens who've immigrated to the West who are living there and moving back and forth. There's all kinds of interchanges happening. So I guess my question is, how bad is the problem today and, and how and what exactly is the problem and, and what could you see it re sort of devolving into if it's not taken care of? I feel that, that the relationship between China and the United States today is as bad as I have ever known it. It's not at the nadir of anything like the 
the depths of the Cultural Revolution or the early 1970s, just before Sino-US rapprochement. But in terms of the direction, I believe that the, the trajectory has not been good. I think the last two or, or some odd years of the COVID pandemic, where travel between the two has been restricted, and hence the communications and conversations have not been able to take place as normal, probably exacerbated that tension that had been surfacing between the two countries. Right. I believe, you know, we had a boycott of the Olympics by uh, Western, the primary Western powers, you know, by uh, officials. And if I'm not mistaken, I think China did not send its highest level um, representatives to the climate summit. So there's definitely and there's been very little um, visible dialogue between uh, Western powers and China at, at the high level. And as you mentioned, China, whilst the the U.S. and Europe has pretty much fully open to uh, to travel. China remains effectively closed. So there's not much in terms of, of visits to China or, or um, media reporting from China. So we are in a, a bit of a dearth of, of, of information and communication and contact now. So I think your book comes out uh, at a very uh, timely moment. So let's talk a little bit about, you know, Maybe one area that we see a lot of tension and potential as a flashpoint are these issues of territorial, overlapping territorial claims. Um, China has overlapping territorial claims with with a number of countries, including uh, India, uh, Japan, uh, most of the Southeast Asian countries. Um, and and so China generally views uh, territorial sovereignty as, as non-negotiable. So um, if China views these as claims as non-negotiable, what is the risk that this is going to turn into um, the most likely source of conflict down the, down the road? Bearing in mind that the U.S. has an alliance system with many of these countries whereby there's mutual defense uh, or there's you know, defense treaties, there's bases, and the U.S. has a commitment to maintain freedom of navigation in international waters, as do many of other major economies. So um, whereas China if, views perhaps some of these areas as its own domestic uh, economic zones. Um, so how big of a risk is this and what's being done to address it? I think that there are probably two issues uh, that, are, that are captured by your question. The, the first I'll address is the um, China's kind of sovereign territorial claims. And th- there's a long history to these, which I, I touch on in, in my book. But ultimately, it comes down to a, a few factors. Uh, one is that in amongst the South China Sea, there are reportedly potentially significant uh, resources under the seabed. And those resources and the commercial opportunity involved in exploiting them is something that countries around the region all want to lay claim to. 
the the second perhaps which is more pertinent is a, an issue over China's maritime security. We, we all think of China as a major exporter, but the reality is that China is a re-exporter. Most of the inputs into China's export goods are imported. And most crucially, China is not self-sufficient for either food or energy, which needs to be imported through the Malacca Strait, that narrow strip of water over which the U.S. Navy has a chokehold. If you consider China's historic sense of vulnerability to outside uh, invasion or outside attack, then China's very vehement uh, statement of its claims uh, and sometimes apparent belligerence, uh, I think, is perhaps better understood. The, the second the second point which your question i guess encapsulates is this this question of non-negotiability and the, the china chinese diplomats often use this phrase and it comes across to many people as, as being quite belligerent and quite inflexible i think if you take a step Back, the, the reality is that actually the West and, and the United States have a lot of non-negotiable beliefs and, and principles. But many or most of these beliefs and principles have been normalized in the international system in that that the United States, particularly in the early part of the, the 20th century, fought and won certain rights and certain understandings among the international community. China at the time was extremely weak and poor and did not really have a seat at the table when the, the current international order was established. China is now a substantial power and Chinese leaders feel a great sense that their beliefs ought to be respected and that China is entitled to a level of respect in the world. And the, the fact that they, they state their claims in sometimes what are perceived to be quite belligerent terms, I think reflects a certain sense of insecurity as they grown into this great power status uh, about you know, their, their ability to assert their beliefs in the international commons. So um, whether it's in relation to territorial issues, um, whether it's in relation to, let's say, uh, cyber and technology, maybe intellectual property, theft or transfer, um, 
we could go on and on um, that there are these er- or, or financial um, intermingling of, of of capital markets. There are all these areas that are there are differences uh, and uh, there's some degree of conflict. I'm wondering, um, you know, the idea of non-negotiability in certain areas shows that there's no room for negotiation or compromise. But I'm wondering is, can you point to recent history of areas where China has compromised uh, to give us maybe a pathway for how China might, like, for instance, I know that uh, China doesn't like issues brought up in a multilateral context. Uh, let's say with ASEAN, it says things should be done on a bilateral basis. Um, and we saw this issue with Philippines and the Scarborough Shoal, where there was a United Nations, um, I guess, um, uh, a, um, a a decree by the United Nations that that area belonged to Philippines and that China didn't recognize that. Um that being said, I'm sure China has compromised in certain areas and might be willing to compromise more. Is there anything that you would think is salient that we should look to as as a way for how China might want to work and cooperate with the rest of the world? I guess the, the area that comes to mind the, the most is actually over global climate issues. Uh, China undeniably is a very big polluter. But if you look at you know, the the pollution generated per head of China's population, it is far below that of the United States or many countries in, in the developed West. And for a long time, China was quite unbending in asserting its rights to pursue development, which entailed a large amount of environmental pollution and damage. And I think that China more recently has certainly yielded and and actually been a big promoter of uh, environmental issues. Thank you for listening. We hope you enjoyed this portion of the podcast. To access the entire podcast, and more high-quality analysis on Asia, please visit our website, reorientpodcast.com. That's one word, all lower caps, reorientpodcast.com.